Section 25 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Alfred Lord Tennyson, Part 2. We now revert to the poet's early, or rather to his middle-age creative years, into a resume of his principal writings, with a brief running comment on his message and art. In 1847, three years before he became laureate, he published The Princess, a charming narrative poem in blank verse, which though it abounds in fine descriptions and has an obvious moral in the treatment of the theme, the woman question of today, is inherently lacking in unity and strength, as well as weak in the depicting of the characters. In later editions, the poem was amended in several faulty respects and was especially enriched by the insertion between the cantos of many lovely and now familiar songs, which serve not only to bind together the whole structure of the poem, but to enhance and enforce its high moral meaning. Any analysis of the princess is here deemed unnecessary since it must not only be familiar to most readers of the poet's works, but familiar also in the varied annotated editions of such editors as Rolfe, Woodbury, and Wilson Ferrand. Familiar, it is believed also, that it will be to Tennysonian students in the study of the princess, with critical and explanatory notes by Dr. S. E. Dawson of Montreal, now of Ottawa, Canada, an able commentary which received the approval of Lord Tennyson himself, and elicited from him a highly interesting letter to the author on points in the poem either misunderstood or not discerningly apprehended by other critics and reviewers. The purport of the poem, it may be said, however, is to frown upon revolutionary attempts to alter the position of women, of scholastically begowned and college-capped dames, who would seek by other than nature's ways to put the sex upon an equality with man, while repressing their own individuality, doing violence to their maternal instincts, and trampling upon their gracious household ways. In the handling of the medley, Tennyson brings into exercise not only his far-seeing powers, which were greatly in advance of his time, but his gifts of raillery and humor, especially in the early divisions of the poem, as well as his high, serious motives in the moral lessons to which he points in the later cantos, where he aims at the elevation of women in correspondence with the diversity of their natures, for, as he himself says, woman is not undeveloped man, but diverse. His ideal of perfect womanhood he would attain through the awakening power of the affections and the transforming power of love, rather than by ignoring the difference of physique, founding women's universities, and becoming blue-stockinged high priestesses of learning. Of the medley of characters in the poem, Poet Princes in Disguise at the College, Violet Hooded Lady Principals, with prudes for proctors, dowagers for deans, and sweet girl graduates in their golden hair. It is Lady Psyche's child that is the true effective heroine of the story, as Dr. Dawson aptly points out. Ridiculous in the lecture room, the babe in the poem, as in the songs, is made the central point upon which the plot turns, for the unconscious child is the concrete embodiment of nature herself, clearing away all merely intellectual theories by her silent influence. This is the explanation, then, of the appearance of the babe, symbol of the power and tenderness of nature, in critical passages of the poem, as well as in the unsurpassably beautiful intercalary songs, for it is the child that enables the poet to soften the prince's nature towards the prince, 
and to effect the reconciliation between the princess and Lady Psyche, while imparting beauty as well as high meaning in the recital of the incidents and development of the tale. In Memoriam, as we have stated, appeared in 1850 and was unique in its appeal to the mind of the era as a stately meditative poem on a single theme, the death of the poet's friend Arthur Hallam. The English language, if we accept Milton's Lycidas and Hymn to the Nativity, and Wordsworth's grand Ode on Intimations of Immortality, has no poem so noble or so faultless in its art as this magnificent series of detached elegies. The high thought, philosophic reflection, and passionate religious sentiment that mark the whole work, added to the exquisiteness of the versification, place it well-nigh supreme in the literature of elegiac poetry. Its grave, majestic hymnal measure adds to its solemn beauty and stateliness, while the varied phases of spiritualized thought and emotional grief which find expression in the poem seem to elevate it in its harmonies to the rank of a profound psalm chant from the choir of heaven. In the sumptuously embellished edition of the elegy, embodying Mr. Harry Fenn's drawings with a sympathetic preface by the Reverend Dr. Henry Van Dyke, there is a brief but luminous analysis of the nine divisions of the poem, or a commentary on the great classic. To those whose desire to read the great elegy understandingly, the value of Dr. Van Dyke's work is earnestly commended, since without this commentary, or such as to be obtained in other critical sources, there is much of poetic beauty, of sorrow-brooding thought, and especially of emotional reflection on life, death, and immortality, in the 130 lyrics of which the poem consists, which will be lost to even the thoughtful reader. The poem, as a critic truthfully observes, has done much to express and to consolidate all that is best in the life of England, its domestic affection, its patriotic feeling, its healthful morality, its rational and earnest religion. The sentimental metrical romance Maud appeared in 1855, the year of the Crimean War, with some additional poems including The Charge of the Light Brigade, written after Raglan's repulse of the Russians at Balaclava, and the fine Ode on the Death of the Duke of Wellington. The lyrical love drama Maud, we are told, was one of Tennyson's favorite productions, of which he was wont to read parts to his guests. As the poet himself has said of the monodrama, it is a little hamlet, the history of a morbid poetic soul under the blighting influence of a recklessly speculative age. He is the heir of madness, an egotist with the makings of a cynic, raised to sanity by a pure and holy love which elevates his whole nature, passing from the heights of triumph to the lowest depths of misery, driven into madness by the loss of her whom he has loved, and when he has at length passed through the fiery furnace and has recovered his reason, giving himself up to work for the good of mankind through the unselfishness born of his great passion. The poem, when it appeared, was reviled by some critics as an allegory of the war with Russia, and they did its author the injustice of supposing that he lauded war for the war's sake, instead of, as is the case, applauding war only in the defense of liberty. Apart from this misunderstanding, due to abhorrence of the war frenzy of the period, the poem has outlived the mistaken objections to it when it appeared, and is now admired in its vindicated light, and especially for the rich and copious beauty manifest throughout the work and for the magnificent lyric art with which it is composed. We now come to Tennyson's masterpiece, The Idols of the King, an epic of chivalry interpreted as personifying in its various characters the soul at war with the senses. 
These appeared during the years 1859 and 1872. Each of the idols, which has a connecting thread binding it to its fellow allegory, takes its plot or fable from the legendary lore that has clustered round the name of Arthur, mythical king of the Britons, about the era of the first invasion by the English. Out of the mass of material which was gathered by Sir Thomas Mallory for his prose history of Arthur and his knights, Tennyson takes the chief incidents and noblest heroic traits of character in the legends and blends them in a fashion of his own, steeping them in an atmosphere which his imagination creates, and lighting up all with a passion and glory of knightly adventure, as well as with a chasteness, purity, and high fervor of ethical thought that must perpetuate the romance, as he has given it us, unto all time. The sections of the work as it now stands, in addition to its introductory dedication to the late Prince Consort and the closing poem to the late Queen Victoria, are as follows. The Coming of Arthur, which relates the mystery of the birth of the king, his marriage to Guinevere, daughter of Leodrogon, king of Camelard, and the wonders attending his crowning and establishment on the throne. Next comes Gareth and Lynette, a tale of love and scorn, and of the conflict between a false pride and a true ambition. To this is appended the marriage of Geraint, of Arthur's court, and a member of the great Order of the Round Table. Next follows Geraint and Enid, Enid the gentle and timid, whom Geraint has married after wooing the haughty Lynette. A tale of pure and loyal womanhood, darkened for a while by the clouds of jealousy and suspicion, yet closing happily long after the spiteful whispers had died down. And Geraint, assured of Enid's fealty, had ruled his kingdom well and gone forth to crown a happy life with a fair death against the heathen of the northern sea, fighting for the blameless king. The next idol relates how the venerable magician Merlin succumbs to the thrall of the wily harlot Vivian, decked in her rare robe of Samite, and yields to her the charm which was his secret. Lancelot and Elaine follows with its conflict between the virgin innocence of Elaine, the lily maid of Astolat, and the guilty passion of the noble though erring Lancelot. To this, in order, succeeds the Holy Grail, telling of the vain quest of Arthur's knights for the sacred relic. Despite its mystic character, this is admittedly one of the finest of the series of idols, and rich in its spiritual teaching, that the heavenly vision is to be seen only by the eyes of purity and grace. Peleus and Atar is a tale of dole, showing the evil at work at the court and the wrecking effect of another woman's perfidy. The last tournament has for its hero the court fool, who amid the treason of Arthur's knights is firm in his loyal allegiance to the king. In contrast to him is Sir Tristram, who, despite his prowess in jousts on the tilting field, is one to whom faith is foolishness and the higher life an idle delusion. The climax is reached in Guinevere, whom, in spite of her faithlessness and guilty intrigue with Lancelot, Arthur, with his great high soul, pityingly loves and forgives. The end comes with the sad, though shadowy, passing of Arthur, the royal barge mysteriously carrying him out into the beyond, whence issue sounds of hail and greeting to the victor hero. As if some fair city were one voice, around a king returning from his wars. In 1864, Tennyson published Enoch Arden, an idol of hearth, depicting a pathetic incident in a seafarer's career of much simple idyllic beauty. The poem has some fine descriptive passages and many examples of the poet's rich word painting in treating of the splendid tropic scenery among which the mariner is for the time cast. 
The volume contained also some minor pieces, including the dialect poem, The Northern Farmer, with its humorous rendering of yokel speech. This was followed, 1875 to 84, by three dramas on English historical themes, which, as the poet had not, as we have already hinted, the gifts of a Shakespeare were somewhat unsuccessful, though written, despite Tennyson's advanced years, with much fine force and vividness of character delineation. These dramas, to enumerate them in their historic order, were Harold, Becket, and Queen Mary. Becket is the best and most ambitious of them, though not, as Queen Mary is, a play designed for the stage. It is a vigorous Englishman's closet study of a prolonged and bitter struggle, the conflict in Henry II's time between the church and the crown, as exhibited in the person and dominant ecclesiastical attitude of the audacious prelate who met his tragic end by Canterbury's altar. Harold strikingly realizes to the modern reader the stirring activities of a strenuous time, that of the English conquest by Norman William, opposed to the death by Harold at Senlac in 1066. The drama is as rich in character as it is swift and energetic in action. Queen Mary deals with the religious and political dissensions, the struggle between the papacy and the Reformation, of Mary Tudor's era, with her love for and marriage with Philip of Spain, and her hopeless yearning for an heir to the double crown of England and Spain. An important and prized addition to our English literature the drama undoubtedly is, but it is not more than a careful, accurate, and elaborate historical study. It lacks, both in spirit and movement, the characteristics of the Shakespearean drama. Its characters, however, are vividly brought out, and its situations are often picturesque and telling. The personages, moreover, are wanting in the play of creative effect, and the incidents lack the stir of inventive resource. Further, though the story of Mary's life is essentially dramatic, and the incidents of her reign are tragic in the extreme, the poet does not seem to have extracted from either that which goes to the making of a great drama. This, evidently, is the result of following too faithfully the events of history and the records of the time, as well as, in some degree, from the want of sympathy, which Tennyson could not impart, with the leading characters and their action. Still much is made of the materials, and though the personages and incidents appear in the narrative in the neutral tints of history, yet the period is made to reappear with a freshness and distinctness which, while it satisfies the scholar, gives a true charm to every lover of the drama. Again and again, as we read, are we reminded of the laureate's rare poetical fancy and fine literary instinct, and the dialogues contain many passages of striking thought and noble utterance. But the work is overcast by the great gloom of its central figure, the gloom of bigotry, passion, jealousy, disappointment, and despair, which ever environs the miserable queen. And much, though the poet has striven to brighten the picture and awaken sympathy for the weakness of the woman, who, royal mistress though she was, could not command her love to be requited, the poetic measure of his lines roughens and hardens to the close when the curtain falls on what is felt to be a tragic and unlovely life. We can only briefly refer to the other dramatis personae introduced to us, who are among the noble historical characters that figure during Mary Tudor's reign. They are those who take part in the incidents, religious, civil, and political, of the period, and are, for the most part, both in speech and bearing, the portraits familiar to us in Mr. Froude's history. Of these, the most pleasing is the Princess Elizabeth, whose portrait is drawn with masterly skill and engages our interest as the fortunes of its original oscillates, twixt axe and crown. A tutor schooled by the shadow of death, 
a Bolin II glancing across the Tudor. But aside from the interest in the safety of her person, which is in constant jeopardy from the jealousy of her half-sister, Elizabeth wins upon the reader by her modest maidenly bearing, her frankness of manner, and by a playfulness of disposition which readily adapts itself to the restraints which the queen is ever placing upon her person, and which endears her to the people, who could the hated Mary be got rid of, would fain become her subjects. The civil strife of the period furnishes material for some powerful passages, which are wrought up with excellent effect, and in this connection Sir Thomas Wyatt, Sir Thomas Stafford, the Earl of Devon, Sir William Cecil, and other historical personages appear upon the stage. The other incidents introduced are those which attach themselves to the religious persecutions of the time, and which brought Cranmer to the stake, and give play to the papal intrigues of Pole, Gardiner, and the emissaries of the Spanish court. The second and third scenes in the fourth act devoted to Cranmer, which detail his martyrdom, are hardly so satisfactory as we think they might have been, though the poet here again follows closely the historical accounts. The scenes, however, give occasion for the introduction of a couple of local gossips whose provincial dialect and keen interest in the national and religious policy of the time, here, as in occasional street scenes, are cleverly portrayed. This sapient reflection in the mouth of one of these gossips, Tib, is a specimen at hand. A burnin' and a burnin' and a makin' old voc matter and matter, but take my word vort, Joan, and I beant wrong not twice a ten year. The burnin' o' the old archbishop ill burn the pop out o' this ear land for iver and ever. Philip we have not spoken of, but he fills such a hateful niche in the historical gallery of the time, and the poet introduces him but to act his pitiful role, that we pass him by, though many of the grandest passages in the drama are those which give expression to Mary's passionate love for him, and her longing desire for an issue of their marriage, which afterwards culminates in her madness and death. We have to speak of but one other character in the drama whose death, it has been said, was sufficient to honor and to dishonor an age. The beautiful Lady Jane Grey appears for a little among the shadows of the poem and moves to her tragic fate. Seventeen, a rose of grace, girl never breathed to rival such a rose, rose never blew that equaled such a bud. A few songs of genuine Tennysonian harmony, pitched in the keys that most fittingly suit the singer's mood, are interspersed through the drama and serve to relieve the narratives of their gloom and plaint. Their presence, we cannot help thinking, recalls work better done and more within the limitations of the poet's genius than this drama of Queen Mary. As a dramatic representation, the drama had the advantage of being produced at the Lyceum Theatre, London, with all the historic art and sumptuous stage setting with which Sir Henry Irving could well give it. Irving himself personating Philip, while Miss Bateman took the part of Queen Mary. Beckett, we should here add, was also given on the stage, and with much dramatic effectiveness, by Irving, over fifty performances of it being called for. None of the dramas, however, as we have said, was a success, though each has its merit, while all are distinguished by many passages of noble and strenuous thought. Other dramatic compositions the poet attempted, though of minor importance to the trilogy just spoken of. These were The Falcon, the groundwork of which is to be found in The Decameron, The Cup, a tragedy rich in action with an incisive dialogue borrowed from Plutarch. The former was staged by Mr. and Mrs. Kendall and had a run of 67 nights. 
the latter was also staged with liberal magnificence by irving and met with considerable success the promise of may is another play which was staged in eighteen eighty two by mrs bernard beer but met with failure by the critics owing in some degree to its supposed caricature of modern agnostics and to the repellent portrayal of one of the eight characters in the piece the sensualist philip edgar later in eighteen ninety two appeared the foresters a pretty pastoral play on the theme of robin hood and maid marian which was produced on the boards in new york by mr daly and his company with a charming woodland setting the later publications of the laureate in his own distinctive field of verse embrace the lover's tale eighteen seventy nine ballads and other poems eighteen eighty Tiresias and other poems eighteen eighty five locksley hall sixty years after eighteen eighty six demeter and other poems eighteen eighty nine and the death of onion akbar's dream and other poems in the year of the poet's death eighteen ninety two in these various volumes there is much admirable work and many tuneful lyrics in the old charming lilting strain without a few serious thoughtful stately pieces of verse the afterglow as stedman praises it of a still radiant genius his aftersong continues this fine critic does not wreck itself upon the master passions of love and ambition and hence fastens less strongly on the thoughts of the young nor does it come with the unused rhythm the fresh and novel cadence that stamped the now hackneyed measure with a lyric's name yet as to its art and imagery the same effects are there differing only in a more vigorous method and intentional roughness from the individual early verse the new burthen is termed pessimistic but for all its impatient summary of ills it ends with a cry of faith we must now hasten to close delightful as it would be to linger over so attractive a theme and to dwell upon the personality of one who so uniquely represents the mind as he has so remarkably influenced the thought of his age but considering the length of the present paper this cannot be happily however the fruitage is ever with us of the poet's full fourscore years of splendid achievement with the hallowing memory of a forceful opulent and blameless life too few men of the past century can the reflecting mind of a coming time more interestingly or more instructively turn than to this profound thinker and mighty musical singer steeped as he was in the varied culture of the ages endowed with the great prophetic powers with phenomenal gifts of poetic expression and with a soul so attuned to the harmonies of heaven as to make him at once the counsellor and the inspiring teacher of his time who in comparison with him has so felt the subtle charm or so interpreted to us the infinite beauty of the world in which we live or more impressively deepened in the mind and conscience of the age belief in the verities of religion while quelling its doubts and quickening its highest hopes and faith tennyson was a passionate believer in the immortal life this was so real to him that he had no patience with skepticism on the subject to question it in his presence was to bring upon one's head a torrent of denunciation and wrath his great soul was intuitively conscious of spiritual realities and he could not understand how little soulless microbes of men and women were destitute of his deep perception prayer was to him a living fact and power and some of his words about it are among the noblest ever written when someone asked him about christ he pointed to a flower and said what the sun is to that flower christ is to my soul apart as he stood from the tumult and the frivolities of his age he was yet of it and sensibly and beneficently influenced it for its higher and nobler weal 
In politics, as we know, he was a liberal conservative, a conserver of what was best in the present and the past, and an advancer of all that tended to true and harmonious progress. His knowledge of men and things was wide and deep. In the philosophic thought, and even in the science of his time, he was deeply read. While he was lovingly interested in all nature, and especially in the common people, whom he often wrote of and touchingly depicted in their humble ways of toil, as well as of joy and sorrow. Above all, he was a man of high and real faith, who believed that good was the final goal of ill, and in the dumb hour clothed in black, that at last came to him, as it comes to all, he confidingly put his trust in loving omnipotence and reverently and beautifully expressed the hope of seeing the guiding pilot of his life, when, with the outflow of its river current into the ocean of the divine unseen, he crossed the bar. For humanity's sake and the wheel of the world and a coming time, this was his joyous cry. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, purer laws. Ring in the love of truth and right. Ring in the common love of good. Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kindlier hand. Ring out to the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. What our formative High-wrought English literature has suffered in Tennyson's passing from the age on which he has shed so much glory, those can best say who are of his era, and have been intimate as each appeared with every successive issue of his works. To the latter, as to all thoughtful students of his writings, he has been the supreme interpreting voice of the past century, while his influence on the literary thought of his time has been of the highest and most potent kind. Especially influential has Tennyson been in carrying forward, with new impulses and inspiration, the poetic traditions of that grand old motherland of English song to which our own poets in the New World, as well as the younger bards of the British Isles, owe so much. If we accept the laureate, there have been few who have worn the singing robe of the poet, who in these later years at least have spoken so impressively to cultured minds on either side of the ocean or have more effectively expressed to his age the high and hallowing spirit of modern poetry. It is this that has given the laureate his exalted place among the great literary influences of the century, and made him the one indubitable representative of English song, with all its tuneful music and rare and delicate art. To a few of the great choir of singers of the past, Tennyson admittedly owed something, both in tradition and in art, for each new impulse has caught and embodied not a little of the spirit and temper, as well as the culture and inspiration of the old, but his it was to impart new and fresher thought and a wider range of harmony and emotion that had been reached by almost any of his predecessors, and to speak to the mind and soul of his time as none other has spoken or could well speak. From the era of Shakespeare and Milton and their chief successors, it is to Tennyson's honor and fame that he has given continuity as well as high perfection to the great coursing stream of noble British verse. Authorities Brooke, Stopford A. Tennyson, His Art and Relation to Modern Life Van Dyke, Henry, The Poetry of Tennyson Bain, Peter, Tennyson and His Teachings Brimley, George, Essays on Tennyson Tainch, Ed C., Study of the Works of Tennyson. Waugh, Arthur. Tennyson, A Study of His Life and Work. Stedman, E.C., Victorian Poets. Buchanan, R., Master Spirits. Foreman, Our Living Poets. Dowden, Ed., 
Tennyson and Browning. Tennyson Hallam, Memoir of the Poet by His Son. Kingsley C. Miscellanies. Thackeray Ritchie, Anne, Records of Tennyson and Others. Robertson F. W. In Memoriam. Dawson, Dr. S. E., Study of the Princess, Annotated. Gaynung, J. F., In Memoriam, Its Purpose and Structure. Woodbury, G. E., The Princess with Notes and Introduction. Farrand Wilson, The Princess with Notes and Introduction. Gaddy Alfred, Key to In Memoriam. Harrison Frederick, Tennyson, Ruskin, and Mill. End of Section 25 End of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord.